Well, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, to that portion of Scripture uh, that was read to us, that Rebecca read to us from Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 26. We will be working our way through much of that this morning, but please keep it before you so that you can keep the verses that come up on the screen in context, uh, although in one sense... Uh, this passage focuses on the Ascension. Uh, we will look at the Ascension in some detail on Ascension Day. And so we'll come back to the particular verses that focus on uh, the Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to be considering uh, this passage today under the broad heading of preparing for Pentecost. And there is, uh, in a sense, just too much for us to be able to zoom into all of the passage in detail. And so we're going to just work uh, our way through this uh, a little bit more high level this morning. Uh, often, as we've gathered here, like today, a group of diverse people, uh, if you've ever been to a, a Baptist church's members meeting, you will know that when a diverse group of people get together to discuss uh, a given topic, um, there will often be a range of convictions put forward, uh, sometimes often directly opposing depending on the individual's life experiences or background or understanding of the subject, for example. And so if I was to today introduce the subject of enthusiasm for us to discuss, I'm sure there would be some of you who would be quick to point out, as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I'm sure there would be others here today who say, no, hang on, you've fallen prey in your life to misguided enthusiasm, and you would be quick to respond to say, yes, but zeal without knowledge is a bad thing. And you would also be right. There's actually been a number of famous quotations uh, over time about this. Zeal without knowledge is like clouds without rain. Zeal without knowledge is like a ship without a rudder. Zeal without knowledge is like a racehorse without a bridle. And I think there's much truth in these sayings because all truth ultimately comes from God who is the source of all wisdom. And so particularly this topic of zeal, uh, zeal and knowledge comes to us from God's word. In, in Proverbs chapter 19 verse 2, we read, it is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. The CSB says, even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. So let's just take this Proverb 19 verse 2 and let's rephrase it in the positive. And then it turns into something like this. It is good to have zeal or passion and enthusiasm with knowledge and to be patient in finding direction. Now, while this is a, a valuable proverb for, for everyday life, I think it is particularly important when we consider this in our own spiritual lives. I think if we are honest about our humanity, we understand that everything else that we do and say and think flows out of our spiritual relationship with the Lord. And so this proverb deals with three things which really come together in our text in Acts chapter 1 today, namely that of knowledge and zeal and direction. And what we will see is that at the very beginning of the building of God's house, the church, 
uh, we have these three things playing a vital role. And this illustration of God's house, or the church being God's house, I think has a wonderful parallel with building any house. Uh, if you've ever built a house, you will know that you need knowledge. You need skills. You need to know about foundations and bricklaying and roof truss design and electrical work and tiling and plumbing. You need knowledge. But with all the knowledge in the world, a house won't be built unless you have zeal, unless you have physical strength and passion and purpose to, to build the actual house. But even with knowledge and zeal, you need something else. You need direction. You need plans in, in order for all that knowledge and zeal to come together into something beautiful that will serve its purpose. And so if I was to, to ask you uh, the question this morning, how does this relate to, um, to Acts chapter 1? Well, we're going to see that all three of these things, knowledge, zeal, and direction, came together uh, in the very early foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Last week uh, in chapter 1, the first five verses of chapter 1, we, we saw that the disciples were, were told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. Without the Holy Spirit, they would not have had the knowledge uh, or the zeal or the direction that they needed to fulfill the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come now to verses 6 to 26, I want to do so under these three headings, and we're going to start off with that of knowledge in verses 6 to 8. And the first thing that we see as we come to verse 6 is a, a wrong understanding revealed. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is the disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin says of this verse, there are as many errors in the question as there are words. Let's just look at some of those. Uh, at this time, at this time, really betrays a common understanding of the people throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, we see this, for example, in Luke chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard Jesus explaining all these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was approaching Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. There was this expectation amongst the Jewish people that the coming of the Messiah would bring about an immediate solution to all their problems. And yes, while Jesus actually did come on the cross and provide an immediate solution to the, the real problem of sin and the judgment of God, they were expecting something very different. And so this reveals the second error uh, in their understanding. Will you, at this time, restore the kingdom? They were expecting Jesus to restore a literal, physical kingdom, the old Testament people of God had once been a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. They were unified under the reign of David and Solomon. Then they split into two, uh, and then later on they were conquered by a whole bunch of enemies. We have the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, and now they were living under the dominion of the Roman Empire. And so 
Surely after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were expecting that finally Jesus was going to march back into Jerusalem and overthrow the political powers and restore the physical kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel. So this leads on to their third error in understanding. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Their thinking was still very narrow ethnically narrow, religious and politically narrow. One of the biggest stumbling blocks to the Jewish understanding of the gospel was that God had plans and purposes to save people outside of the nation of Israel. Throughout the history of the Old Testament, they had misunderstood all the promises that God gave to his people, that through the seed or the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so the disciples come now to Jesus and they are asking him, Lord, are you going to restore the physical, political, ethnic kingdom of Israel now? And so Jesus responds to them in the second place under this topic of knowledge with a right understanding restored. Before Jesus can send out this band of disciples to go and fulfill the, the great commission, he needs to do some more work on their knowledge. He needs to restore a big picture of a, a gospel-centered picture of, of who he is and, and why he came to earth. And so we see that each of the errors in their question, Jesus responds with a correction with a right understanding restored. And we see that he says the timing is not important. The timing is not important, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't worry about God's timing of when these things will happen. This is under my Father's sovereign authority and it's not for you to know. I think this is a, a necessary corrective for, for many in our modern Christianity today who seem overly consumed with the end times. All the details, predictions of dates, searching for signs. Here, Jesus Christ tells his disciples, the timing is in God's hands. It's not for you to know. So don't worry about it. But next, Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. It's not a literal, physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Look at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus' whole emphasis to his disciples is that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a political or a military kingdom. They should have known this. Jesus had plainly declared this in his trial before Pilate in, in John 18, verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom. But thirdly, Jesus 
addresses their misunderstanding of who belongs to the kingdom of God, explaining that the recipients are universal. Again, look at verse 8. When the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, they would have got that. In all Judea, okay, we're happy with that. And Samaria, now hang on, that's getting a little bit uncomfortable. And to the ends of the earth. Assyrians, Babylonians, Romans, South Africans. This is exactly the point that Paul is making in Galatians 3, that God's salvation purposes have always been universal. Look at Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then, says Paul, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, in your offspring, in your seed, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. So Jesus has corrected their wrong understanding. He has increased their knowledge. But an increase in knowledge and understanding is never meant to remain theoretical. No, a knowledge of the truth leads to great responsibility. And the responsibility is seen in verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Now this has clear application uh, to us and our understanding today. Don't worry about when The end of the world will come. It will come. But in the meantime, we are in a spiritual kingdom battle, and we are servants of the King of Kings, the the risen, about to ascend Jesus, and we are called to be his witnesses. You and I are living in what Theologians call the overlap of the ages. We considered this when we looked at the book of Revelation. We are physically living in this world, in this physical world, but we are currently as Christian citizens of the world to come. From the first coming to the second coming of Jesus, we are living in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom of God has already come but it is not yet fully and finally consummated. And so we are living in this overlap between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And you and I need to get our priorities right. We need to determine whose kingdom do we truly belong to and whose king are we actually serving. We must remember that the kingdom of God is is much bigger than the Honey Ridge Baptist Church. It's been so good to have the Phelpses with us in January, and now the Abbots with us, and Alpa with us, and we watch mission videos. We need to know that the kingdom of God reaches out beyond the boundaries of this church on a Sunday, beyond the boundaries of your small group meeting that meets throughout the week, beyond the boundaries of race and social class and education that reaches beyond the boundaries of our city and our country. We do not exist as a church to simply fellowship and sing on a Sunday morning. We exist as a church from the foundation of the church to be witnesses of Jesus Christ 
to a lost world. If I were to ask you this morning, we met over coffee after the service, and I, and I just said to you, can you explain to me how you know that you are a Christian? How many of you would quite quickly go to the fact that you're a member of this church, you're involved, you attend the services regularly, you tithe, you go to home cell, you help out with the youth or Bible land on a Sunday. Those are all good. Praise God for those things. But how much of your Christian identity would be linked to you having received power through the Holy Spirit in order to be a witness of Jesus Christ in your Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I mentioned at the beginning of our series that there are going to be moments along our study in the book of Acts where a paradigm shift is going to need to take place. And perhaps this is one for some of you here this morning. Church is not the place for me to come and feel good about being a Christian. Meeting here like this on a Sunday, attending a small group in homes throughout the week, this is what we do to be equipped by the Spirit, to be built up in knowledge in order to go out from these meetings and to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Yeah, coming here on a Sunday, it's, it's wonderful to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth as we've done this morning, to sit under His Word, to go and enjoy fellowship with one another after the service. But worship and teaching and fellowship, these things should all energize our hearts and our minds to go out as witnesses of Jesus Christ, who, people who've just met with the Lord, if you've just met with the Lord here this morning, if you've spent an hour worshiping Him, if you've heard Him speak to you, if you've been encouraged by other brothers and sisters in Christ, how can you not go out and want to spread that with others? There's a label that has come to light in recent years. It's a label which has been applied to, sadly, much of conservative evangelical Christianity. It's called spiritual obesity. And it refers to people who come to church every Sunday, who get a full diet of spiritual food, who then gather again on Wednesday nights and get another dose of spiritual food, and then they do nothing with it. Their minds have become spiritually overweight and lazy because we do not burn up that spiritual food through the exercise of service and witness in the kingdom of God. I pray that God would spare us here at Honey Ridge from spiritual obesity. Because all it requires is to come, on, come to church on Sunday and then for the rest of the week to do nothing. That's all. To do nothing. So I pray that God would correct our thinking and our understanding to, to restore to us this vision which Jesus had for his disciples as he tried to, to give them the big picture view of why he came and what his purpose was for them as his disciples. It starts with knowledge, yes. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm never an advocate of, of, a, of a shallow, superficial knowledge of God and his word. But this must lead on to something else. 
And that takes us to the second point this morning, which is that of zeal. Zeal. We'll, we'll come to that in a moment, but just look at what, what James says. James says in, in James 1.22, look how knowledge is meant to lead to action. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Knowledge leads to action. And so we're going to come in the second place and consider the zeal of the disciples this morning in verses 12 to 14. Why, why is zeal needed? Well, the whole context of this passage, and I, I'm sure your experience in life tells you that zeal is needed in order to accomplish anything. What have you ever accomplished in your own life of any significance that didn't require zeal, a, a passion and a commitment to achieve a goal? How much more so then the zeal that's needed to accomplish this great commission? Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again. When, but, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will that power do? It will mobilize you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In order to accomplish this massive task of taking the name of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations. And once they've been made disciples, and that's really a lifelong process, part of that is to teach them all that Jesus commanded. This is going to take, require some serious zeal. In order to fulfill the Great Commission, these disciples were going to need much more than a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about Jesus and, and what he had just told them. They were going to need so much more than a, a mountaintop spiritual experience as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. They were going to need even far more than, than deep human compassion for those around them who were lost and going to a lost eternity. What they were going to need was nothing less than the very zeal of God himself when the Holy Spirit came upon them. But very interestingly, how do we see their zeal expressed? Now, we're going to get to Pentecost uh, in, in a week or two's time, and um, well, we'll see it next week and moving on in the week after uh, what took place at Pentecost and after Pentecost. But even now, how do we see their zeal expressed? They hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit. But what we will see in these verses is that once they did receive the Holy Spirit, the pattern laid down now continued throughout the book of Acts. Even after the Spirit was poured out, two things characterized their lives. Firstly, obedience. Obedience in verse 12 and 13. Remember Jesus said in verse 4, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift which my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And so what do we find the disciples doing as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven? We find that they obey. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, humanly speaking, this makes no sense. After all, Jesus had just given them this great commission to go and make him known to all the ends of the earth. 
There was so much witnessing that they had to do. They'd just seen Jesus ascend into heaven. Surely there, there would be some Jerusalem Times reporters who, who would love to, to get the eyewitness scoop on this story. Surely the miraculous and spectacular event of Jesus ascending and angels would have been the, the boost that they need to get their evangelistic campaign on the road. But obedience to the word of God is always more important than the very best of human wisdom and strategies and zeal. God's ways are not our ways. And so what do we see? They obey Jesus and they return to Jerusalem and they wait. They wait. Something I've found uh, in my years of both being in business and then in the pastoral ministry, especially working with young adults and, and young professional business people, is that probably 90% of the time when people came to see me to ask for advice or counsel because they knew I was a Christian or I was their pastor, the problem was very seldom that they did not know what was the right thing to do. The problem was usually just simply obedience to what God required. And so the disciples teach us that one of the crucial characteristics of a godly zeal, the kind of zeal which accomplishes much for God, is simply this faithful obedience to the word of God. It's not rocket science. Take God's word at face value and simply obey it. But the second characteristic of zeal which we see in their lives here and throughout the rest of the New Testament is one of prayer in verse 14. We really could make verse 14 an entire sermon on its own. There's so much to learn from verse 14, but just look briefly at what it says. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They all joined together. The Greek here is a, a compound uh, verb, which literally means with one passion, with one mind. There was a, a unanimity in their purpose. They all joined together as they prayed for the same thing. I think from the context we know that would have clearly been the, the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The NIV says constantly, the ESV says devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. And again, the, the Greek really includes both. They were continuously giving themselves over to prayer. This was something which characterized these early disciples and the rest of the New Testament church. As people came to Christ, they had an eager uh, desire to, to learn, to, to listen to Jesus speak to them through his word and through preaching of the apostles, and their response was a devotion to speaking back to God in prayer. Now, these two characteristics of zeal for God cannot be overemphasized in our day and age. The church needs a sharp reminder that we are called to diligently obey the word of God. 
And unless we devote ourselves continuously to prayer, we may have all the knowledge in the world. We might have all the correct theological I's dotted and T's crossed, but we will get nowhere for the kingdom of God. I think we have a new pandemic which is radically sweeping across our country today, and it's the pandemic of busyness. The standard response, I'm ashamed to say, that I give and that I usually receive when asked, how's your week been, is busy. Hectic busy. Unbelievably busy. And if we're honest, one of the easiest things to let slip when we are so busy is our simple obedience to God's word and our devotion to prayer. John Wesley, the the founder of the Methodist Church, is said to have traveled on horseback, preaching two or three times a day. It's believed that he rode 400,000 kilometers on horseback in his lifetime. He preached more than 40,000 sermons. That's three sermons a day, every day, for 35 years. And in addition to that, he formed societies, he opened chapels, he examined and commissioned new preachers, he administered aid charities, he superintended schools and orphanages, he wrote numerous theological works, and along with his brother Charles Wesley, he wrote many, many hymns. Listen to what John Wesley had to say about being busy. I have so much to do that I spend several hours in prayer before I'm able to do it. Unfortunately, we, I doubt, can say the same thing. And maybe that's a challenge to us this morning as to why it seems like we are accomplishing so little in terms of reaching the lost for the kingdom of God. We're all busy, 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 busy. But is it busyness that has been devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ every day for the power of his Holy Spirit to cause us to walk with zeal and passion as his witnesses in this world? The 20th century evangelist Leonard Ravenhill said this, let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church and the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room for its spiritual life. Again, what a reminder this is to our small groups, small group leaders. Can I encourage you to allocate a good amount of time each week to pray? To pray, not just praying for the needs of the people in the group, that's good, but to be praying for God's church here at Honeyridge to be praying for us as elders and deacons and pastors, to be praying for our missionaries, to be praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us so that our zeal for Jesus Christ will be evidenced through our obedience to his word and our witness to the gospel. How can we expect God to do great things amongst his people if we do not pray and ask him to do it? 
finally then, and with this I'll close, we need to consider the third element. We've seen something of, of their knowledge of Jesus Christ growing uh, in terms of understanding Him and His kingdom. We've considered their zeal for God through obedience and prayer. But in the final place, we see something of their direction. Uh, remember that illustration of a house? Uh, without direction, even though you might have all the skill and all the zeal, if you don't have a plan, what will end out or come out at the end is most likely not going to be a very nice house. There will be a toilet off the kitchen. Um, so how much more so as we come to God's Word? Let's consider direction in verses 15 to 26. It's a longer section, uh, but what we see here uh, is is their attitude towards direction, to receiving direction from God. And, and what we first see is they had a very high regard for man's direction. This office of leadership which Jesus had given to the, the 11 apostles. We know Judas had betrayed Jesus, he had hung himself, and so they needed another apostle to be appointed. They did not take the task lightly. Although we don't see an exact parallel, we don't believe that the office of apostle continues in the church today. We, we see from Acts chapter 1 that the office of an, an apostle was very exclusively someone who had been with Jesus throughout his entire time of teaching and had witnessed his resurrection. So there are no more apostles in the church today. But we recognize that what they, what they sought after does sort of convey itself or carry on in the office of elder in the, leader of the ch in the leadership of the church today. God has appointed people in the church today to lead as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. We call them elders. We've seen their qualifications laid out in, in 1 Timothy recently. But the lesson from Acts that we can learn at this point is that the candidates that they considered to replace Judas, it had to have been someone who had been with Jesus. In other words, it had to be someone who knew Jesus and could testify to the world of Jesus. So this should characterize not just the leaders in our church, but every member of the church. Can you say that about yourself? Can you truly say that this is a description of you, that you are someone who has been with Jesus? This was the requirement for replacing Judas, someone who had been with Jesus. But we see even more regard for God's direction. Just glance over those verses and you'll see that in the speech that Peter made, uh, twice he appeals to Scripture. Look at verse 14. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which this Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Again, verse 20. It is written in the book of Psalms. Their starting point for making any decision was the Word of God. What do the Scriptures say? That's where they began. But then following on from that, they then applied biblical wisdom, biblical common sense. We've just spent a, almost a whole year working through the book of Proverbs. After turning to the Scriptures for clear revelation, they then apply biblical wisdom, logic, criteria for this new apostle, a man who had been with Jesus from the beginning who could be a witness of the resurrection. And after looking to the Scriptures and applying sound biblical wisdom, they were left with two choices. 
And so at that point, we see that they turn to God for spiritual direction. Look at verse 23. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I don't want us to get uh, too sidetracked uh, on this issue of casting lots here. Uh, this was an acceptable approach to guidance set forth in the Old Testament. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. By the way, the significant thing here is that this is the very last time that casting lots is ever mentioned in the rest of Scripture. This method of guidance became obsolete once the Holy Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost and subsequently on all believers and as the teaching of Jesus and his apostles was written down for us in the Scriptures. We now have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. But nevertheless, the, I think there's some principles, general principles for guidance that we can end off with here this morning, uh, which are very practical for us today. And we see a pattern coming out of the book of Acts here, uh, which is helpful for us as we think about guidance, biblical guidance. Firstly, study God's word. Seek the clear commands and principles of God's word. Go to his word, read it, read it in context. Get a good commentary to help you understand it. Pick up the phone, call me or one of the elders or your Bible study leader. Ask someone else if you're not sure, but make the scriptures your starting point. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and training, building up in righteousness. Study God's word. We see they did that. Secondly, apply biblical wisdom. Apply God's wisdom to every situation to try and narrow down the options. There's not always going to be a chapter and a verse that speaks exactly into your situation, but there will always be principles in God's word that can be applied to every situation with godly wisdom. And this may involve seeking counsel from others whom God has placed over you who are well equipped to give you advice in your specific situation. Proverbs 15 says, verse 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And then finally, pray and ask God to direct your decision by his Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 12, remember what Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, not in some kind of mystical way, apart from biblical principles of wisdom, apart from the clear teaching of God's word. No, through those very things, the Holy Spirit guides us. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, brothers, sorry, James chapter 1 verse 5 just says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So I pray that these things that we've learned from the very beginning of the early church would be a great 
encouragement, but also a challenge to us this morning, that we would be filled with all the fullness of the knowledge of God that is found in Jesus Christ. That knowledge, that that knowledge of Jesus would, would lead to a zeal and a passion for God that reveals itself in obedience and prayer. And then we would trust God for all the direction that we need as we seek to put his, his commands and his commission into practice. So let me close with a final quote from Paul. It ties this whole subject of zeal and knowledge directly to the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul speaks about his desire for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not according to the knowledge of the gospel. He says, because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, that righteousness which comes by faith alone through Christ alone, and they are seeking to establish their own righteousness and not submit to God's. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the message that we've been given to go out and proclaim, not just to Jews, but to Jews and Gentiles alike that there is a righteousness from God which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So may we go out with a greater understanding and appreciation for Christ this morning. May we be empowered by his Holy Spirit. If you are here this morning without zeal, you just spiritually pop. Pray to God for the power of the Holy Spirit to equip you to go and do what God has called you to do, that we may be his witnesses as we look to him uh, to not only work in us, but through us to accomplish his purposes here on earth. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you being able to just look back to the very beginning of the church, to a small group of people, who in one sense had so much less than we have in terms of knowledge and, and the, the full revelation of the Scriptures and a full understanding that has been given to us. And yet we see a zeal and a knowledge and a direction that came from you empowered by the Holy Spirit which changed the world. Lord, if that's what you could do and did do through a small group of 120 people, who came to know Jesus, received the Holy Spirit, and then went out obediently in dependence upon you. Lord, we long to see what you could do here at Honeyridge with 200 or 300 or 400 people who desire the same thing. How much more could you be doing across the face of the globe as Christians in every place desire and align themselves to the kingdom of God as these early disciples did. Lord, won't you help us to reassess our living in this world as kingdom citizens of the next, our priorities, our values, what's driving us, and may you be pleased to work in us and through us ultimately that which is for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.